0: People notice a healthy smile, but maybe you have tooth sensitivity, bleeding gums, or acid-weakened enamel. Sensodyne, Peridontax, and Pronamel are trusted specialty toothpastes created to help improve your oral health. For tooth sensitivity, choose Sensodyne. Bleeding gums, get Paradontax. For acid-weakened enamel, Pronamel is the toothpaste for you. Sensodyne, Paradontax, and Pronamel. Trusted specialty toothpaste to help bring home your healthy smile. Visit Ibotta to earn cash back. This holiday season, it's all about the bedroom. And Casper's Black
1: Friday sale has up to 30% off everything you need to make your bedroom your happy place. Only Casper mattresses are made with 86 supportive gel pods to align your spine and eliminate aches and pains. And Casper bed frames are made from the highest quality materials. Give the gift of a better bedroom. Save up to 30% during Casper's Black Friday sale on now at Casper.com. Terms and conditions apply. See Casper.com slash terms for more details.
0: Welcome to the interview. Today, my guest is Jamie Mottram. He is currently the president of the innovative apparel firm Breaking Tea. Previously, he was director of blogs at Yahoo Sports, where he helped create the iconic blog Ball Don't Lie, and is known to be credited for the blog style of sports journalism. Jamie was senior director of social strategy for USA Today Network, where he helped start For the Win, and he's also been a producer at AOL. We discuss a variety of topics, including internet business models in the age of social media, the survival of the free press, innovations in content delivery, and of course, the journey of breaking tea, and a lot more. Enjoy the show. So joining us today is uh, Jamie Mottram, president of Breaking Tea. Uh, you see uh, t-shirts from the website all the time. Every time Kyle Lowry does anything, it seems like a new t-shirt is popping up. And, and, and the man behind that really is, is Jamie Mottram. Welcome to the show, Jamie.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's the whole team. It's not just me. So uh, I'll I'll try to represent.
0: Was there a particular moment that happened that inspired the idea behind Breaking Tea? I think the initial
1: hit shirt that made it so that Breaking Tea was becoming a real thing. And, you know, it kind of showed the promise of, of the Breaking Tea apparel model. It was when Jose Bautista hit the home run for the Blue Jays in the wild card game five years ago and he threw his bat high into the air. Breaking tea very quickly designed a Batista bat flip graphic that kind of depicted you know, him tossing the bat way up, up in the air and got it licensed by the MLB players. And put it online either that night or the next morning after it happened. And they sold something like 5,000 units of that shirt direct to consumer, you know, to fans online. And you could do the math at like 25 bucks a pop. It was just amazing, you know, because Breaking Tea at the time was such a small company. It wasn't even anybody's primary concern. It was kind of a side project of a couple of entrepreneurs. So that
0: was the first big hit. And, uh, you know, we've we've been chasing it ever since. Uh, that's an amazing story. I, I, I did not know that. It, you, you mentioned like you got that licensed overnight. Uh, did you already have a relationship with the Players Association to create a pair like that? Or did you like or, or did that happen overnight as well?
1: We had already become a licensee of the MLBPA maybe a month or two before that moment occurred. You know, the tracks were kind of laid out. For, for how to take products to market, uh, on within that license. Um, but there have been other instances where something happens and we're striking a deal with, with the entity, whether that's a player or a team or, or whatever sort of on the fly. Well, a thing is really hot and has everyone's attention.
0: A few years back uh, when the Raptors were in the playoff, this is the DeMar DeRozan era. Uh, and, um, we had an idea for a t-shirt uh, and it was called Kings in the North because Game of Thrones was at its peak at the time and, and the Raptors were these outsiders. So we created this, uh, this t-shirt and I think we just sold it on Teespring maybe. And we sold maybe 5,000 t-shirts uh, overnight, except the problem was the next day we got a, you know, a letter from Maple Leaf sports and entertainment lawyers taking it down. And they actually worked directly with Teespring to take our, uh, our, our product page down. And so that was a lesson learned from us that you got to have an agreement before you start selling t-shirts.
1: That's wild. I'm curious, were you able to fulfill or was Teespring willing to fulfill those orders or did customers all get their refunds?
0: Everybody got their refund.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Hey, Hey, work with us next time.
0: <laughs> will do, will do. For sure. The playoffs are going on, so you, you never know um, what can happen here. Uh, and, and and this was, you know, a few years back. And since then, uh, have you have you seen the, the company grow to different markets? And what has what your growth been like over the last little bit?
1: I joined the company three years ago, almost exactly three years ago. And I was the first full time employee. We've steadily grown over these three years. I mean, we just, I think we had. And still have a good idea and we're differentiated, you know, I mean, it's real time sports apparel focusing on kind of the the hot moments that fans are so excited about. You know, like when Kawhi hit that shot that bounced on the rim four times last year, I mean, we had two or three different graphics, like, you know, different pieces of art to depict that moment licensed and out to market the next day. You know, so that like that's just a that's good product and it doesn't always exist, at least in licensed or in quality or in time fashion. So, you know, we've just been working to apply that and growing in all sorts of ways to fulfill the promise of it. So, you know, we have 10 full time employees now, several more people than that that are involved in some way. You know, like just for example, we have a dozen freelance artists in addition to our, our staff artists. We've added additional licenses. So it used to be just MLBPA. Now it's several different players associations, several different colleges and teams, you know, different direct-to-player deals. Uh, we have tons of media partnerships, you know, with SB Nation has a site for every team, including the RAPs, of course, fan-sided, same thing. We've worked with Bleacher Report and The Ringer, uh, NBC Sports, Yahoo Sports, really expanded into working with retail partners. So a retail partner could be the team. You know, we've worked at the Raptors. Our products are sold in the arena stores. And we do that with about half of the NBA teams, most of the Major League Baseball teams, and probably 75 teams or so across the different sports, plus different retailers like... Um, Dick's sporting Goods is the biggest sporting goods chain in, in the U.S. So that, those are kind of all the different ways that the company's grown the past several years. And it's super fun. I have a media background. I've never done anything like this before. I've learned a ton. <laughs> I've never worked this hard in my life. And I also haven't had this much fun working in my life.
0: We talked a little offline about uh, a Twitter conversation that happened, which mentioned the the Mottram sports model and i think it was ben Koo who uh, who referenced that uh, on twitter could you explain what that model is and and how you sort of sort of came up with it
1: <laughs> cuz i don't think i've ever said that in my life like i don't think i've ever like called anything a matra model and i don't know if anybody other than ben has ever used that I know what he's referring to. And there's like a handful of people on the planet that would probably like know or understand or care about this. But it's like, I think what he's referring to is probably 10 years ago, a little bit more than that, even I went to Yahoo Sports from AOL. I was working on AOL sports and kind of AOL digital sports content and I went to Yahoo, and um, at the time, they had some great reporters, columnists, editors, you know, hybrids of those things. Like, in the NBA, they had Adrian Wojnarowski. So he was already breaking news and dropping woge bombs, even though that term didn't exist. He, that's you know he was doing that at Yahoo, and they had you know a woge for every every sport basically. Jeff Passan is is kind of the woge of baseball. He was the baseball guy there. He's on ESPN every day now. But they didn't have any blogs, you know. They didn't have any social media. Didn't really there was there was no Twitter at the time. Just kind of emerging, and Facebook wasn't really like a place where. Media brands were had a presence and Instagram didn't exist, so they they hired me there to kind of get into blogging. And and the approach that we took was to create a blog and hire a blogger or a small team of bloggers for each sport. And we did that in like 2000. Eight, nine, 10 and kind of stood up and developed blogs by sports. So for NBA, that was ball. Don't lie. Uh, for NHL it was puck daddy. And, you know, we gave them these like fun brands and, and hired like really talented kind of up and coming writers. I mean, it was mostly text-based content that we were incorporating a lot of like different media as well, but it wasn't like, you know, podcasts that that wasn't even a consideration. Video content didn't matter to us. We, there was no social. So it was really about pure blogging Raptors, famous Raptors, celebrity fan and influencer uh, J.E. Skeets was the uh, original like bald do lie guy uh, along with Kelly Dwyer so we did that and had a lot of success with it at Yahoo for like three or four years and then it was kind of like it, it became replicated by a lot of the other major sports sites so you'd see like NBC had like pro football talk and pro basketball talk etc and CBS had like Eye on football, eye on basketball, and it was kind of the same exact approach. I, and so when Ben says the Matra model, and nobody knows what that is, well, that's what that
0: is. I had never heard of the term as well. The pattern is definitely recognizable. And you mentioned Ball Don't Lie, which is something that I used to check. And once, uh, once those guys went uh, went to their next thing, Ball Don't Lie kind of died. Is that a model that is sustainable to actually make money? Was that a money maker or was that a loss leader?
1: That was a moneymaker because it was like a lean, mean blogging machine. Like Jay Skeets or the Bald On Lie team, you know, together, they're probably doing, you know, 10 good pieces of content every day that are kind of covering like all the biggest topics across the league. You know, back then, like I said, social traffic wasn't really a thing, but search traffic was. So they're getting, you know, a lot of search traffic. And then like Yahoo had a really big captive audience. One of my favorite quips from, from then would be like yahoo.com is the number one page on the internet <laughs> like straight up like number one and i think google had passed it at that point but the delineation was it was the number one page that humans were curating every single day you know something happens in basketball like what happened last night i don't know i'm just kind of trying to figure out something like, like boban It gives a great interview with the TNT guys. That is a really good piece of content that could be created for a blog and then put on the Yahoo homepage. And yeah, you could put anything on the Yahoo homepage or any like front page of any publication and it's going to perform. But this content would overperform. So you'd be getting that many more clicks and that much more display ad revenue as a result of the content just being that much more engaging versus like a typical game story or something. You know, that was working really well. We had like a really efficient team that was like growing audience, increasing traffic, making enough off of display to more than pay for the resources that were being applied. But this is also a context of like 10 years ago. It's also the context of like a much larger media org that probably was even then a loss leader, you know? Um, if you're relying on display ads to, you know, drive your business, like you've got to be, first of all, you got to drive a lot of traffic, but second of all, you got to be lean, you know? You can't have a lot of overhead for that to work. And, you know, I think, I think that's what we've seen over the last however many years.
0: Your traffic volume needs to be so high for you to solely rely on display advertising to actually have a team like you did at Ball Don't Lie and, and, and Yahoo Sports. In today's day and age, where it's a struggle enough to actually get people to come visit your site because a lot of the content is actually being consumed within the context of social media, whether it be Instagram, Twitter, or or whatever it is. So even that display advertising part that used to generate revenue, you have high engagement numbers, but your revenue numbers are down because people just aren't visiting your site as much. They're consuming your content, but really in platforms where you don't really make money. how How do you reconcile that? I mean, you don't. (laughs) That's the struggle.
1: Facebook slash Instagram and even Twitter now, all of the content lives natively on those platforms in a way that the publishers aren't able to monetize. And in part, that's like the publisher's fault. And whether that publisher is, you know, Raptors Republic or ESPN... We, we collectively have been putting content on those platforms for 10 years and around the mid 2000s, I'm sorry, 2010s, whatever we call the last decade, the teens that really ramped up after Yahoo in 2012 or 2013. I guess it was 2013. I I went to Gannett, which owns USA Today and like 100 papers in in the States. And uh, my job there was to start like digital sports properties, you know, so come up with new like websites basically. And the first like kind of big one we did was this site called For the Win. And For the Win was supposed to be like sports content intended for the social audience. This was launching in like 2013. We were trying to create content that was going to be like relevant within the timeline, you know, whether that was Twitter or Facebook, kind of like stuff that's trending and to be created in a way that was kind of optimized for mobile usage. You know, you're on your phone. If you're in your Twitter timeline, you're on Facebook, like you're probably on your phone, you're clicking on this headline, you know, Kyle Lowry throws a ball onto the stands or whatever. Just made that up. You click the link and you go to the site and you get like a really nice like pithy well laid out easily digestible story that you can dip into and then go back to your timeline well that's the behavior that we were optimizing for and that we had tons of success with for like the first 2 or 3 years of for the win and then a few years in that same content like Kyle Lowry throwing the ball under the stands 2 or 3 years in if you saw that in your timeline you wouldn't have to click a link it would just start autoplaying now you could spend all day in your timeline and never click a link because all the, all the information, all the content's already there to begin with. It could be a native video. It could be photo or graphic or GIF. It could be a tweet thread. You'll see reporters or analysts or whatever doing like, you know, a 20 tweet thread, which is basically a story or a column or it used to be. And the monetization isn't there for anyone other than Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. That's just a huge game changer that's really happened over the past five years or so. It makes it really difficult to have a sustainable business in not just sports media, but you know, media in general.
0: Social media companies like Facebook are profiting immensely from content that other publishers create. Uh, a lot of the news stuff that, that is posted on Facebook is really you know, made by CNN or, or whatever your source of news is. But really, customers engage with them at Facebook. The engagement time for Facebook gets higher because you're scrolling through the feed and all that. And the publisher, as you said, doesn't really profit from it. So there has been some some talk in, in some countries where the social media companies have to compensate, basically pay the publisher some part of the ad revenue that gets generated because ultimately it's their content. Do you think that is something that might catch on in the States or North America?
1: I hope so. Yeah. Almost have to hold Facebook and Google to a lesser extent, Twitter to account. You know, if you want to have a a free press, like you kind of have to hold these platforms to account to help support the the business, you know, the media business, because otherwise it'll die. I mean, local news is already pretty much dead. You do see some publications or outlets thriving. You know, you could look at the New York Times or the Washington Post. They've never had this many subscribers before. But that behavior of news readers paying for digital content, it doesn't really apply more broadly to certainly not to local, but really not to any anything that doesn't provide like unmatched coverage of subjects that are important to people. I think there is opportunity with subscription business, but you really have to show that value that is unmatched you know, I think broadly in sports, the athletic is is attempting to do that. At the same time, I, I actually am an athletic subscriber, but I don't know that I would be if not for my business interests. There's enough good sports content out there that I don't need to subscribe to the athletic.
0: It's almost like we are hurting ourselves by providing content for free and competing against each other when there is another party in the mix, which is profiting from all of us.
1: Well, and I think a lot of it was done on promise. So you as my role at Gannett evolved, it kind of evolved into like a social content strategy role. And part of the strategy at the time, I mean, it's like 2016, 17 is, oh, wow, there's native video on Facebook and Twitter is becoming much more you know predominant medium in and of itself. And we can't monetize it, but the audience is there and the numbers are great. And these platforms are working with publishers like us to figure out the model. So let's build up the audience and the behavior and try to get millions and millions of views for our content on platform. And even if we're making you know, pennies on the dollar now, we'll be positioned to capitalize later. This is a predominant way of thinking in the media industry three, four years ago. And it just hasn't happened. So it's not like those people then were like, oh, I'm going to leave Facebook and Twitter and now I'm going go to go back to the websites. <laughs> you know, like, no, <laughs> they, they, they just stayed on Facebook and Twitter.
0: What's also getting compromised in the mix as as publishers struggle to, uh, you know, monetize audiences is that they compensate for it by showing more ads or you have autoplay video. Like I can't even go to CBSports.com anymore because of the autoplay video. Uh, we, we had an autoplay video on our site and it was making some money. We actually took it down because I hated visiting it. Like I was annoyed at the fact that that thing played every time. And I'm like, if I feel that way, imagine what the users feel. So we actually sacrifice some revenue just to just to get a, a little bit of better user experience.
1: My least favorite thing, probably even more annoying than autoplay video, which I've kind of become accustomed to and or figured out like how to work around is when you visit a site and it asks you like it's on desktop and you it asks you if you would like notifications or like alerts from that site, you know, like desktop notifications from a site. I don't know why. I don't know why you'd want that. <laughs> but it's like a site that I've never been to before. But yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, of course you want to provide the best user experience and the best content, but that's at odds with the ability to keep payroll going. At Yahoo, I was kind of like... Uh, pain in the ass for people because of course the people at Yahoo wanted to put autoplay video on all these blog posts that were getting millions of, of eyeballs because the, the monetization would have been so much better, but the experience would have sucked. You know, it's a constant push and pull. Obviously, the ad revenue is drying up for display. Not all publishers can get people to subscribe. The way things are trending is really you know, looking at different revenue opportunities that could be with podcasts. That could be with merchandise or kind of commerce. You'll see a lot of publishers hiring commerce editors, kind of integrate relevant commercial opportunities into content or adjacent to content. There's just been a lot more of like revenue diversification that's happened versus five to 10 years ago. It just really felt like we were talking about ads.
0: It becomes very, very difficult to actually sustain and maintain quality content. We also have talked about, should we be going to a subscription model? Because we do feel we have a very high level of quality in, in the content we produce but then at the same time that that almost is at odds with with our ethos as a site which was always supposed to be a community driven site open to every raptor fan and slapping a a, a paywall in front of it doesn't doesn't jive it doesn't jive at all
1: one loose trend is almost like that it's like readers are supporting the cause. It's almost like a charity aspect to it. I personally am paying for different newsletters or websites or things that I could do without, you know, on subjects that I care about. But I acknowledge that there's really no business model there. So I can give. $5 a month or a dollar a month or whatever, almost as an act of charity. You know, so it's a messed up place to be in. <laughs> <You> know, it's <laughs> like it, it, it's almost a public good for the government to legislate that platforms would need to share profits with publishers. You know, that's sort of what I'm talking about. But on the individual kind of consumer level, that's a behavior that I see. I see people say, yeah, I subscribe to the paper. I don't really read it, but you know, I don't want to see it go out of
0: business. There was one uh, one website which was fairly innovative, I, I thought, uh, which is uh, the Players Tribune, uh, which took a different take on things and had players directly writing content. It's heavily editorialized and probably there's some ghost writers there. But but at the end of the day, it, it when it's published, it's coming from the player's mouth and you can actually quote the player uh, based on uh, what's in the article. When that came out, how did you what was your reaction uh, to that concept?
1: I thought it was cool. and I thought like once a month or maybe more frequently, maybe sometimes less frequently, they would publish something just truly awesome. Like one that I remember reading was like Quentin Richardson wrote a first person piece just about like his life, like the story of his life and coming up and kind of becoming like a young basketball phenom. It was it was terrific. Or like Kevin Durant might announce where he's going next. You know, <laughs> I'm signing with the Warriors or whatever like that was really powerful and and would be really valuable from a business standpoint, but it was few and far between, so it always struck me that like they didn't really have a way of filling the gaps between those tentpole stories that they would have that they would publish periodically and then furthermore, they had what seemed to be a pretty big they had a lot of overhead i mean I've been to their office or what was their office in Manhattan, and it ain't cheap. Uh, it was really it was really nice, and there was, like, an indoor basketball court and, like, a cool, trendy, like, bar scene adjacent to the court and all this stuff that, like, you know, pretty well-funded.
0: Isn't Derek Jeter behind that one? They had Jeter, yeah. I mean,
1: there was actually a great thing that I think somebody at For the Win created, which was, like, a Players' Tribune org chart. <laughs> and it was, because you know how, like, it has somebody publish something you know, it'd be like Kevin Durant publishes his piece and his title would be like executive editor, Kevin Durant, (laughs) or like, like, you know, Steve Nash publishes something and it's like, you know, assistant managing editor, Steve Nash. So we had like a whole, a whole, uh, chart, but yeah, I mean, they were, they were really well funded, but you know, how long ago did that start? You know, several years back. And I think they just, you know, they were kind of upside down to begin with and never really got it
0: right. Is there any particular model that you look at right now out there or any site that you look at and you go like, they're getting it right? Like that, that, that may be the next template that, that go, that goes into mass production across the board.
1: Yeah. I mean, the one you always see mentioned, unfortunately, is Barstool Sports. That's the one that people are like, man, everybody's struggling, but they're thriving and that's tough. I mean, and I almost don't even consider them to be sports. It's like this kind of weird lifestyle I guess it's comedy brands. I don't know. But they they do some things where like they can get their audience to pay for things. They can get their audience to pay for merch, they can get their audience to pay for subscriptions for events. It's very tribal, you know, and it kind of transcends sports. It's like so that, that, that to me is like kind of unique and not one that could be easily replicated even if you wanted to. But I was just talking to earlier today about uh, a company, you know, small and, and growing, baseball focused. Have you heard of Jomboy? Jomboy Media? I know. So John Boy, I I might be misspeaking, but I mean, in broad strokes, like basically I think it was this guy who's a Yankees fan and he would like kind of take videos of things that occur, like notable things that occur on the baseball field. Like say there's a, a, a manager gets ejected or there's a fight or there's just like a crazy play or sequence in a game. He does like a voiceover video analysis of those things. And he's really funny, but also really insightful. He started doing that on social, and just gained so much popularity. I think like he started a podcast out of that, and now like he's gotten a, found a, gotten a little bit of traction, and now is, and was he was entirely Yankees focused. But now he's kind of broadened the reach to be all baseball and has several different people on staff and like a small office in New York and they're doing you know podcasts and YouTube and merch and still very active on social and it's just like good content and they seem to have struck a chord and found an audience. Uh, to me it's like yeah that that's very very modern you know it's very diversified. it's not it, it's very distributed. So it's not just diversified in terms of revenue streams, but it's distributed in terms of like platforms and ways that people are are finding the content. And I don't know. I just like it. John Boy Media. I could see it happening or something like that happening in basketball, football, hockey, etc
0: yeah, I'm just checking out right now and it, uh, it it looks definitely something unique, something new. I mean, whenever there's saturation in any market, there's always opportunity for innovation and and sounds like this is something certainly something different. Uh, let's go back to the athletic a little bit for long form journalism like if you if you are writing you know in-depth basketball analysis, it, it takes a lot of time to uh, to create that content as you know. is it even possible to spend that much money? Without having a massive audience, and I'm talking millions, are, are we almost like forced to try the subscription model because that's the only thing that economically makes sense anymore?
1: I mean, I'm not a huge NBA guy, but I'm I'm into the NBA. You know, like I read Zach Low. How about we'll use Zach Low as like a barometer? <laughs> yeah, he's writing pretty in depth and or wonky pieces. You know, a couple a week or a few a week, whatever it is. And uh, generally on the NBA overall. I I don't need too much more than that. And I think that's kind of a question is like, how much do people need? Even though, you know, the industry seems to be struggling, is struggling, workforces are diminishing, um, revenues are going down, there's still like way more content available now than ever before. And it doesn't matter like what you care about, There's unless maybe you're talking about local local news. <laughs> There's more. There's more available than ever before. So, what is the market demand as well? It's not just like the business model. It's also you
0: know
1: what is the demand for these really meaty pieces on on the same subject. You know, I, I think in some cases, like it's never ending. Like there's a never ending desire to learn more about the Raptors for certain people. There's a never ending desire to learn more about the NFL for certain people. And those people will pay, but that's a niche audience. And if you can get you know a hundred people to pay ten dollars a month, well then you've got you know a thousand dollars in revenue. That's not going to pay anybody's full time. You know, it's not a full time wage really for anyone. If you can get a thousand, okay, I think a thousand people to pay ten bucks a month. Well, that's that's interesting. Then you're starting to talk about six figures, and at least you're talking about like one or two people that could kind of be supported by that. The, the deeper you're talking about going into any given subject, it's almost like the fewer people there are out there. That would pay for it, and it is achievable and sustainable. But the number of producers, you know, that are behind it has got to be limited. So I mean, that's a, that's an interesting thing with like newsletters. You've got to be awesome at covering the subject, and it's got to pretty much just be like you or a couple other people. Uh, and it's got to be a subject that enough people will care about.
0: Charity, it is. Charity, <laughs> <laughs> sure, well. Sometimes a lot of
1: this also feels like audition for, like, The Athletic or some other publisher to say, oh, yeah, well, this person has some traction on their own. We're going to gobble them up.
0: Yeah, and and that's happened to us. I mean, uh, a lot of our writers have been poached by, uh, you know, companies with deep pockets. And and from their perspective, it's easy pickings, right, because they're offering a salary probably – you know whatever the salary is, it's more than what we're offering. And at this point, they can kind of like it's almost like we're parading our, our our talent in front of the big fish and saying, "Pick whatever you want." And guess what? You don't have to pay us anything when you poach them. That's right. Mark Cuban uh, a while ago, and I'm talking like five six years ago, I think, uh, had written a blog and he uh, and he described the situation really well. And he was talking about the daily newspaper, which uh, you know, like your Toronto Star or your whatever your local newspaper is in Wilmington. And he goes, that that will never die. And he made the same point that you just made a couple of minutes ago, is that it's what you need for the vast majority of sports fans. They just want a high level recap of the game, the score, who played well, who didn't. And that Mm -hmm. satisfies them more than enough. And sometimes I think we're in the business of making the mistake that people care more than they actually do. And you gave the example with yourself of uh, of reading Zach Lowe and how that's more than sufficient for you. Now, let me let me ask you this question. If Zach Lowe went behind a paywall, would you pay for it? I feel bad saying this, but no. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess charity it is then. Uh, the, the, uh,
1: but also Zach, but also Zach, like ESP, like there's special cases like New York Times and Washington Post earlier, special cases. Like their model is hard to replicate. ESPN's model is hard to replicate because ESPN is basically Netflix. How, how, what do you mean by that? Could you explain that one? People will pay for ESPN streaming. Like they will pay for ESPN's live programming. And Zach Lowe and everyone who works at ESPN.com is in support of that. Like anything that happens at ESPN is not really replicable by any other sports outlet because they don't have this gargantuan business that's based on live TV slash live streaming
0: like ESPN has And and also I mean ESPN is so big that I mean you could have like departments losing money which they've had for for years which are compensated by departments that are making money I mean the cable TV business now it's going down finally after 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 uh, you know after decades of dominance I mean that basically paid for everything else and then when you have Disney thrown into the mix you can you can afford to pump out online content and lose money because some some guys you know going on the theme park ride
1: Every single cable subscriber is paying like five dollars or maybe more per month
0: to ESPN,
1: because it's part of like the basic package. The average subscriber is paying like five or six dollars per month to ESPN, and the number two highest network is like maybe a dollar, maybe. And, and and we're talking about like you know at peak like a hundred million plus subscribers you know so that's kind of where I, where I'm coming and, and now that's transitioning over to like a, a streaming world you know it has been transitioning the last several years and now the cable number might be down but you have people paying for ESPN or watch ESPN or whatever the hell it's called a la carte you still have like a Netflix comparison there <laughs> where it's like people subscribing for video content. Everything that's kind of done downstream from that, including, you know, a writer for ESPN.com is all in support of that flagship business.
0: And what's interesting about that, that uh, stat you threw out about people paying six bucks a month for ESPN, you pay that even if you don't subscribe to ESPN. Like that's part of your cable bundling bill.
1: (laughs) Right. My grandma didn't even, I don't think she's ever watched ESPN, but she's paying, you know, 60 bucks a year for it.
0: Yeah. Well, Jamie, uh, I think uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you for your insights uh, on, uh, on sports media and content, and uh, good luck with breaking tea. Certainly, the next time uh, Pascal Siakam does something insane, uh, we'll, we'll get a T-shirt out uh, right away. Uh, congratulations on your success, and, and good luck in the future.
1: Thank you so much. would be happy to do another Spicy PT. And uh, if you could please uh, perpetuate this myth of the mantra model. Uh, I'd appreciate it
0: (laughs) I I think it's a thing now we just made it a thing Ben started it and we're going to finish it off
1: okay good well hey great talking to you thanks so much